Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Times seem tense, but how do we love despite disagreements and tension? On this episode, Bishop shares how loving our neighbor is more than just a theory. There's practical ways to do it. Through sharing the words of Jesus and the saints, as well as Catholic social teaching, Bishop breaks it down. Then it's on to listener-submitted questions. Topics include how to talk to teens about gender dysphoria, resources for married couples to grow spiritually, and more. To submit your question, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you again for joining us. You're welcome, Kyle. How are you today? I'm doing well. One of the things we're going to talk about is how to love your neighbor, how to be a good neighbor. And so it got me thinking about what your neighborhood was like growing up. Did you hang out with your neighbors much? Oh, yeah. I, good friends in the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Also, I had... Were uh, you in town? So neighbors yeah, I was nearby? in the city of Lebanon. Uh-huh. So, I, yeah, my best friend was just a couple doors down the road, down the street, I mean. Also, I had a cousin I was close to who lived across the street. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it was great. Neighborhood kids, yeah, had a Did lot of fun. you play in the street much? Uh, in the alleys by the streets, yeah. Also, we would go up to the community park, ride our bikes, and there was a lot of... I went there all the time in the summer. It's funny when I think back, like, how much care we have now when, you know, we would be allowed to roam and yeah. do what we wanted all day, just had to be home by five for right. dinner. <laughs> but, um, yeah, a lot of fun with neighbors. Besides bikes, what else would you... Basketball... Uh, a lot of swimming in the summer. I would say some basketball, although I would say basketball was more when I became a teenager than I really got into basketball. I don't think so much in uh, a little bit in grade school. And I should uh, take that back because I did play probably junior high. I started with basketball, baseball, um, but a lot of it wasn't organized sports like you have today. It was yeah, picking yeah. up things. Yeah. You know, I remember playing badminton. I remember uh-huh. playing. Uh, Kickball, I remember. Did you ever play wiffle cro- ball? Croquet? Nope. Okay. I mean, again, later, not yeah. as a kid. I don't remember that being. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Where did you swim? Coleman Park Pool, this big okay. public pool. It seemed huge. I was uh-huh. back and I thought, wow, this isn't as big as I remember. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I love going off the diving board and all that. I mean, it's like every day, drive up, ride up the bike and. Uh-huh. It was just a lot of great memories, yeah. Oh, good. Do you have an opening prayer for us today? Why don't we do the Subtuum Presidium, uh, which means under your protection. This is the oldest Marian prayer that we have, the oldest prayer to the Blessed Mother. And it's short, but it's it's, uh, right to the point. Okay, great. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We fly to thy protection, O Holy Mother of God. Despise not our petitions and our necessities, but deliver us always from all dangers, O glorious and blessed Virgin. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, thank you for that. We mentioned that we're going to be talking about being a good neighbor, loving our neighbor. Uh, Obviously, this is a, a biblical thing, but also I feel like it can be maybe sometimes a little too general. It might just seem like love everyone and then that becomes overwhelming. Like, how do I love everyone? So 
especially with right now, there's, it seems like there's a lot of division, disagreement, arguments. So maybe we're called even more so to love our neighbor and to to have these conversations with love and maybe avoiding conversations to maintain love sometimes. So I'm really excited to kind of break this down a little bit. Maybe to start with, how do we define neighbor whenever we're talking about love your neighbor? Well, I think it's good to to see where we, we get this from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Leviticus, in the Old Testament, it talks about love of God and love of neighbor. And then Jesus himself reiterated this. Mm-hmm. Remember, our Lord was asked that question, what is the first of the commandments? Right. And Jesus answered, the first is, and here's where he's quoting the Old Testament, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, when, when he's saying that, that there's no, no greater, I also can see that there's no other commandment that doesn't fall under these two. Right. If you look at the Ten Commandments, the first three fall under love of God. Right. The last seven fall under love of neighbor. So Mm -hmm. Jesus is really summing everything up. Love is the fulfillment of the law, basically. So yeah, love of neighbor is core to the Christian life. And as a matter of fact, it's inseparable Mm -hmm. from love of God. If we right. say we love God, St. John writes, you know, we say we love God and we hate our neighbor, we're liars. Right. But, you know, as basic as this is, I think we need to focus more on it. With all the, some hate, mm-hmm. but all this, what I would call unrighteous anger mm-hmm. and all this division in our society, you know, where's, where's love here? You know, where's... Where's Christianity here? Where's the new commandment that Jesus gives us? He said to us, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. I mean, that's at the heart of the Christian life. Mm -hmm. And you can think about St. Paul wrote a lot about this. You know, he said, if I have not love, if I have not charity, I'm nothing. You know? Really, charity is the highest of all the virtues. Love is the the perfection of the law. It's not always easy. When you look at the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the list that St. Paul gives us in the letter to the Galatians, what's the first fruit? Love. I agree with you, too. I mean, we shouldn't just make it okay. Yes, it is loving everyone. There's, there's no one that we should not love. Mm-hmm. But you don't just keep it as a theoretical thing. I mean, yeah, it, it, it should be real and concrete, you know, beginning with members of our own family, Mm -hmm. a husband loving his wife, a wife loving her husband, loving their children, children loving their parents, loving their brothers and sisters. Sometimes those closest to us, we get most irritated with sometimes. (laughs) But the commandment to love our neighbor begins with the neighbor that lives with us in our own home, you know? Um, But this whole idea of love of neighbor extends to a special love for the poor and the suffering. Mm-hmm. And it even extends to enemies. And that's kind of a hallmark of Christianity. But you asked about defining neighbor. I think it's important to remember when Jesus was asked that question, who is my neighbor? 
So mm-hmm. why don't we go back to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10. If you remember, there was a scholar of the law, basically a scribe, a teacher of the Torah, who tested Jesus in Luke chapter 10. And he said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mm -hmm. And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The scholar of the law said, rightly, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Basically, the... uh, you know, he was, he was quoting the book of Deuteronomy. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Mm-hmm. Do this and you will live. That's not the end of the story. The scholar said to Jesus, because he wanted to justify himself, said, who is my neighbor? You know, because at that point, if you look at Leviticus, you know, sometimes neighbor could be understood more narrowly like your neighbor's a relative or mm-hmm. someone who's part of your own clan, your own people. Right. Or it could be understand more broadly to include, let's say, foreigners, refugees in your own land. That could be your neighbor. It depends on, you know, where you look in scripture. So how you interpret this, well Jesus gives the authoritative interpretation. And he does so by giving a parable. Okay. So so the guy the the scholar said, Who is my neighbor? What parable did Jesus give him? The Good Samaritan. Exactly. The Good Samaritan. So it's it's really interesting when you think, okay, now how does that answer the question, who is my neighbor? Who was the neighbor to the victim of the robber in the Good Samaritan? The neighbor was the Samaritan. Mm-hmm. Okay? The one who gives love. And really, that would be shocking to that that scribe, you know, the fact of the Samaritans were considered enemies. And he's saying, no, the Samaritan was the good neighbor here. Samaritan loved and took care of the guy who was beaten up on the side of the road. So at the end of the parable, Jesus said to the, the scholar, which of these three, which means the Levite, the priest or the Samaritan, which of these three, in your opinion, was neighbor to the robber's victim? And the scribe answered, the one who treated him with mercy. He couldn't even say the Samaritan, <laughs> right. you know, the one who yeah. treated him with mercy. And Jesus said to him, go, you know, you know do that likewise. guy. <laughs> yeah, that guy. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, we're to be neighbors, even to our enemies by doing mercy to them. So, I guess when it, it is somebody that we would normally categorize as an enemy, whether it's literally somebody that's op- opposing us in some kind of a war or something like that, or if it's just somebody, maybe even a family member that we really disagree on something with, maybe they, they're very against our faith even. Right. How do we show them love when we disagree so much? And maybe we're trying to convince them that they're, they're wrong, mm-hmm. whether it be abortion or any, you know, any issue within within the church. How do we love that person? Uh, that's the that's the great question. I think we all have people in our lives who are perhaps a family member, a relative, a friend, or a former friend, or a next door neighbor, or a colleague at work, 
who has views on things that we find very troubling. Mm -hmm. Let's say you have a neighbor who's uh, pro-abortion mm -hmm. or a neighbor who's a racist right. or other things that are really appalling, other views that are really appalling. We're still called to love them. How do we show our love? How do we interact with them? Well, number one is to pray for them. I mean, always. You know, so if you have a family member who's really, you know, anti-Catholic, for example, who's or pro-abortion or a racist, pray for them. I think we do have an obligation to bear witness to our faith, to the truth of the gospel on these issues. But that doesn't mean that we're constantly arguing with them about it because we're not going to perhaps get anywhere. They should know our position mm -hmm. clearly. But then, you know, you have to just discern, well, we're not going to have any kind of relationship if all we do is argue about mm -hmm. this. So, so you might have to withdraw from, from that for the sake of love and just hope and pray for the person. And if there is an opening sometime, you know, right. you can have that uh, discussion or whatever. But sometimes, you know, your witness is the best way to change somebody's right. mind. But you might have to avoid certain topics for the sake of peace in the family. You know, we've seen a lot of experience that. And it's painful, you know, but, but sometimes it's you just have to discern when to speak, when to keep quiet. But a relationship can become so deteriorated because of disagreements on some of these fundamental things, you know, there, people no longer talk to each other or they'll never get together. There's no, and I don't think, I mean, sometimes we can't control that. I mean, sometimes someone chooses that, that and they don't want to ever, they don't want to get together because they disagree so strongly. I mean, there's nothing we can do about it if that's the way they feel. So can loving somebody exist outside of truth? This whole truth and charity, the caritas and veritate, the veritatum and caritates, however. Right. Can we love somebody and ignore the truth or uh, maybe even allow the extreme would be endorse a falsehood, a lie? No, we're not. We, we can't endorse a falsehood, but we're not doing that by loving someone. Who, who holds to a falsehood, right? you know? For example, you know, yeah, I have to love someone who is living a lifestyle that is against our Christian faith, mm -hmm. you know? They would know that we disagree with it, but does that mean because of the way they're living that we shouldn't have any contact or we reject them or what do you call it in the... In the um, shun them or right. whatever like that in the Amish community. No, we don't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's painful, no question. Now, if a relationship becomes toxic, now there could be a situation where, where you would want to maintain the distance from the person. And that may be necessary for one's own mental and spiritual health. For example, if if a relationship is so toxic, in other words, if that relationship where you're being almost abused because of your views, that you're getting constantly attacked and it's having an effect on your own health, mm -hmm. you're allowed not to continue in that relationship because it's doing harm to you. 
That's hopefully a rare occurrence, but it, I've heard of that happening. That doesn't mean you don't love the person. You're just trying to protect yourself from constant criticism or attacks that are, you know, causing you health problems. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe uh, the Matthew 25 with the sheep and the goats and the sheep go to heaven, the goats go to hell. Who were the sheep? They, they were the people that, that fed me when I was hungry. And, and Jesus makes this correlation between loving God and loving neighbor, that I am the neighbor, that whenever you help them, you help me. Whenever you hurt them, you hurt me. And we can see that. And I think maybe whenever we apply that to family members or actual neighbors or the homeless or whatever, we can, we can see like, oh, that's Jesus that I'm helping the Jesus. A little bit harder whenever it's a mass murder or a terrorist. And we know that we're supposed to love that person and see Jesus in that person when they're, they've done such horrible things. It seems so contrary to anything that Jesus would have done or said. And I think that might be sometimes the most difficult whenever we're still supposed to, to love the, the terrorist or the, right. the person that has done so much damage or is, is, seems to be very evil in, in their actions. Yeah, it may be impossible for us to, uh, very difficult if not impossible for us to see if there's any good in that person that right. could be an image of Jesus. But I would look at that person as still someone who's created in the image and likeness of God, mm -hmm. who has dignity, who maybe has done terrible evil, and I would pray for their conversion. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, coming up, I want to continue talking a little bit about this, about uh, solidarity, subsidiarity, and if there's any encyclicals that might talk about this, as well as listener submitted questions right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. We've been talking about loving our neighbor, how sometimes that's easy, sometimes it's difficult, and neighbor isn't just the person next door, but anybody that we might run into that we are called to love them, even if we disagree, uh, maybe especially if we disagree. And one of the things that I feel like we may, might be related to this is the idea of subsidiarity and solidarity. Maybe before we get into those, you could give a brief explanation of those two principles? Yeah, I mean, very important principles of Catholic social teaching. I think I probably have talked about them on this show, but giving a definition, solidarity basically has to do with we're all members of the same human family, and therefore we're all equal, and we all should be concerned for one another, mm -hmm. especially those who are hurting, those who are poor, those who are suffering. We are to be in solidarity with all the members of the human family as equal in God's sight. Subsidiarity has to do with how decisions should be made. There should be respect for the more local of organizations, especially the family. The role of government, for example, would, would be secondary. That the role of government comes in in order to protect the common good, to protect people, security, etc. But the higher level uh, in society shouldn't be usurping the role of the lower level. Mm -hmm. So government should be a last resort kind well, of thing? I, I would say when you look at subsidiarity, it, you know, there's certain things that local government okay, right. would have more, should have more of a say okay. uh, than let's say the federal government. Uh -huh. So yeah, we don't want state control of everything, you know? So 
So yeah, it's a respect for the lower order. I don't have the actual definition in front of me. I, I should get it because it might be more clear. But I've talked about it often, I think, in on this show. I think solidarity is probably easier for a lot of people to understand than, than subsidiarity. But basically, you know, when you look at, at uh, solidarity, you know, there's, there needs to be solidarity between rich and poor, solidarity among workers, solidarity among nations, solidarity among peoples. There should be in international solidarity. We should be in solidarity in fighting this pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, what's so sad is there's all this division this political division. Right. And, you know, when should the society be, when should people be most united is we should be in solidarity and fighting this, this pandemic without arguing about everything. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very frustrating. And I never would have thought, especially in the United States, that we'd have this kind of division when we have a common enemy, you know, right. a, a virus. Anyhow, it's getting a little bit. A no, global I'm, common enemy. I'm not enemy. getting off the point. It's yeah. probably... Uh, you know, uh, relevant to, to this discussion. Yeah, subsidiarity is a really important principle. I just found the definition, and it comes from, I think, Pius XI, John Paul II certainly spoke a lot about this. A community of a higher order should not interfere in the internal life of a community of a lower order, depriving the latter of its functions, but rather should support it in case of need and help to coordinate its activity with the activities of the rest of society, always with a view to the common good. Hmm. So there are limits then to state intervention. Mm -hmm. so, okay. so how does that relate to loving your neighbor then? Well, I mean, solidarity, you can definitely see. I mean, part of uh, being in solidarity, we should, for example, in this pandemic, if we're in solidarity, we should be concerned about transmitting the virus mm -hmm. to those who are elderly or susceptible to severe consequences, even death, right. if they contract the virus. We need to be in solidarity with the elderly. Mm -hmm. We need to be in solidarity with those who have health conditions that their lives could be unhealthy or in danger by this virus. So, so if that means wearing a mask, well, that's our responsibility. Mm -hmm. We need to be in solidarity and stop talking all the time. Oh, I have a right to, you know, my freedom and all that. Never has the Catholic Church talked about rights without talking about responsibilities. Right. Rights and responsibilities. I'm tired of hearing about, oh, this is my right. That's selfish. Yeah. So anyhow, that's in the issue of... Go but isn't it Pope John Paul II who said, freedom is the ability not to do what we want, but to do what we ought. Right, exactly. So we have the right what to do the right thing. We have yeah. the freedom to do what's best for our neighbor. And that's, yeah. that's yeah. where yeah. that Christian understanding of, of love comes in. Yeah. And I want to say, give me a break <laughs> when it comes to some of this. I yeah. mean... You know, the little sacrifice that some of this by, by maintaining social distance or things like that and people are, you know, or wearing a mask at times as if, you know, that's some big, you know, I, okay, if someone has a problem with that causes physical distress for them, that's different. But the average person, you know, what, what's the big deal? 
you yeah. know. So anyhow, what was your original question? I got sidetracked. Solidarity and loving your neighbor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that gave, gives an example. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I, you know, I see beautiful acts of solidarity uh, all the time. I mean, I think of our St. Vincent de Paul Society and their solidarity with those who are less fortunate, mm-hmm. where they actually go out and visit homes to bring help to people. I mean, sure. just the, the, the works of mercy. That's also subsidiarity, though, that they're it doing is. on a local level and, yeah. and that people are supporting them on a local level. Yeah, as well. exactly. Even as much as a family. Mm-hmm. Like a, a, a Catholic family or a Christian family that decides that part of their family life is going to be doing some charity uh, work for the poor, mm-hmm. a project, maybe visiting a nursing home, whatever it might be. Yeah, I think it should be part of every level of the church, for example, this solidarity with the poor. I mean, that is the gospel. Um, right. So, and subsidiarity, as you said. So, on these most local levels, you know, I love to see like all the service being done in our Catholic schools. That's another example of solidarity and subsidiarity. Mm-hmm. So, are there any encyclicals that you would recommend on the topic of loving your neighbor and how that applies with subsidiarity and solidarity? Yeah, the great first encyclical of Pope Benedict the Sixteenth: God is love. I mean, I've read it probably 10 times. Okay. If you, and I, I don't, I'm sure we've talked about this, but the, the first part of that encyclical is all about the unity of love in creation and in salvation history. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful reflection on what we mean by love. And Pope Benedict goes into the difference of eros and agape, and it, it's just very beautiful in the biblical faith. But at the end of that first part, he actually has a section on love of God and love of neighbor, the double commandment that we've been talking about. He quotes the first letter of St. John. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Hmm. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So really, Pope Benedict's reinforcing this unbreakable bond between love of God and love of neighbor. They're so connected to each other that to say we love God, it's a lie if we're close to our neighbor. And really, when you think about it, love of neighbor is a path that leads to encounter with God. That's something Pope Benedict says. And when we close our eyes to our neighbor, we close our eyes to God. Right. When we talk about love, it's also important to... You know, it's not mere sentiment. Now, sentiment is a good thing. You know, a sentiment would be like you like somebody. You have this sentiment. You have this feeling. But feelings come and go. Hmm. It's not the fullness of love. And I think that's important because sometimes with marriage, for example, some of that romantic spark goes away, the sentiment. But but love needs to remain. Mm -hmm. Love is to endure. And it's much more than any kind of infatuation or mere feeling and love matures in marriage and that's really important so we are called to love those we don't like and we're we're called to love those we don't know Hmm. and and that can only take place pope benedict says on the basis of an intimate encounter with god an encounter which has become a communion of will even affecting my feelings Then I learned to look on this other person, not simply with my eyes and my feelings, 
but from the perspective of Jesus Christ. His friend is my friend. That's what Pope Benedict says. Hmm. Going beyond exterior appearances, I perceive in others an interior desire for a sign of love, of concern. This I can offer them not only through the organizations intended for such purposes, accepting it perhaps as a political necessity. Seeing with the eyes of Christ, I can give to others much more than their outward necessities. I can give them the look of love which they crave. Here we see the necessary interplay between love of God and love of neighbor, which the first letter of John speaks of with such insistence. If I have no contact whatsoever with God in my life, then I cannot see in the other anything more than the other, and I am incapable of seeing in him the image of God. But if in my life I fail completely to heed others, solely out of his desire to be devout and to perform my religious duties, then my relationship with God will also grow arid. It becomes merely proper, but loveless. Only my readiness to encounter my neighbor and to show him love makes me sensitive to God as well. Only if I serve my neighbor can my eyes be opened to what God does for me and how much he loves me. The saints considered the example of Blessed Teresa of Calcutta constantly renewed their capacity for love of neighbor from their encounter with the Eucharistic Lord. And conversely, this encounter acquired its realism and depth in their service to others. Love of God and love of neighbor are thus inseparable. They form a single commandment, but both live from the love of God who has loved us first. No longer is it a question then of a commandment imposed from without and calling for the impossible, but rather of a freely bestowed experience of love from within, a love which by its very nature must then be shared with others. Love grows through love. Love is divine because it comes from God and unites us to God. Through this unifying process, it makes us a we, which transcends our divisions and makes us one until in the end, God is all in all. Now, that was a very long quote. I'm sorry. but um, <laughs> And then the whole second part of the encyclical, God is love, is about how the church is to practice love. The church is a community of love. So it gets into all you know, the issues about the church's charitable activity and how charity is a responsibility of the church and all the different structures of charitable service that we have in the church and how the church's charitable activity is distinctive from, let's say, other social organizations. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's very, very good. But I think this foundation uh, that Pope Benedict gives is, is very helpful. All right. Again, that's God is Love, Deus Caritas Est. And if you're not familiar with encyclicals, you can buy them at any bookstore, but also you can get it free off the Vatican website. Just download it, get a PDF whatever to, to read through. So thank you for that resource. If you have any questions for Bishop, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash Ask Bishop or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. Someone asked about talking to youth about gender identity and somebody is looking for resources for married couples to grow spiritually. And we got more coming up here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman asking questions that you've submitted for Bishop to respond to. Our first listener submitted question is, I have children in junior high and high school. How should I talk to them about gender identity and dysphoria? Big question. First of all, I think the, the truth that God created us male and female mm-hmm. and uh, the truth about masculinity and femininity, that this is basic to human nature. It's how we are created and we're called to accept our sex as given to us by God. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's very important. We have to talk about the giftedness of male and female, the complementarity, all of that. But then I would say there are people who struggle with where they don't necessarily identify with their, with their sex, with mm-hmm. their biological sex. And this is a disorder. This is something that we need to have a lot of compassion mm-hmm. for people who struggle with that. Unfortunately, with gender ideology in, in culture today, There are those who say that people should be able to define for themselves their gender, even if it's different from their biological sex. We cannot accept that. Mm -hmm. And it's not really in accord, not only with our faith, it's not in accord with right reason. You know, male and female is male and female. But that doesn't mean we should be heartless or mean or uncompassionate for someone who's having a, who has trouble identifying with their biological sex. You know, gender dysphoria is real. Mm -hmm. There are some people who are, have difficulty relating to to their biological sex. So we want to teach our children and young people the importance of love and compassion for those who struggle with this. But that doesn't mean then that we accept or promote things that like sex reassignment surgery or hormonal therapy to attempt to change one's sex. Well, first of all, you can't, it's innate. Mm -hmm. But to do that, especially when you talk about sex reassignment, that can be like genital or uh, what do you call it? Um, Mutilation or? Mutilation, that's the word, mutilation, which is, is sinful. For example, in our Catholic hospitals, we will not perform sex reassignment surgeries. It's also, I mean, we're not talking about a, 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 a diseased organ, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, the, uh, whether it's the, the, the organs of the male or female body to do damage to them when there's no disease, you know, it's right. not, it's not something that it's just that that would be mutilation. So we don't allow that. And, and, and those who especially promote this. I mean, there are people who've undergone gender reassignment surgeries and later regret it mm-hmm. or may have been pressured to it. Like now, sometimes young people in some schools are kind of given the idea, oh, you can choose what you want to be. You can choose to be male. You can choose to be female. Or So then they have teenagers, for example, taking hormones to... Um, and, and that can be damaging to their health. Yeah. I mean, it increases heart problems and all this kind of stuff. There's a lot of medical research which which talks about the dangers of some of these medical you know, strategies when really we're dealing with a psychological issue right. here. You know? yeah, not to and that's what needs to be. Damage that would do to your mental health, right. potentially. And also, yeah. But I mean, 
the gender theory people, and a lot of this you hear in, in some universities today, if you want to characterize this as a disorder, they'll say, oh, you're prejudiced against transgender people, or you're a bigot. I mean, that's the accusation. Mm-hmm. So it makes people afraid to, to talk about it. But, you know, in the end, you know, we don't, I, I just think parents, that's the original question, need to be honest with their children, junior high and high school students. What is the truth here? You know, and we reject many of these gender theories, this gender ideology. And we don't believe it's for the true good of the person to affirm what is not true or to allow or support surgeries or uh, chemicals to try to alter one's sex. Mm -hmm. All right. Another listener asked, are there any resources you can recommend for married couples who hope to grow spiritually? There's a lot of good resources on the USCCB for your marriage website. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of good spiritual things I would recommend. I'd also check out the Hallow app, which, uh, I think that would be good for couples. They can pray together using the Hallow app. I've talked about that on this show before. If they want to look at some good books, there's some good books by Dr. Gregory and Lisa Popchak. Mm -hmm. Some of those books, or most of them, I think, are published by OSV. Mm -hmm. A lot of good things about spirituality and marriage. And I'm not sure how I got on the list, but I get emails from the diocesan, uh, the marriage and family life. Yes, and like Lisa Everett, Everett yeah. and Fred Everett. Yeah, it's it's always got resources, podcasts to listen to, articles to read, a lot of different things. I don't know if it's maybe monthly that I get that or something. Yeah, excellent. Yes, Lisa Everett does a great job. So I highly, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, people can sign up. All right. Someone asked, where does the word bishop come from? Are bishops mentioned in the Bible? Yeah, the word is episkopos in Greek, then in translated into Latin as episkopus, in English as bishop, we find in the New Testament. And it basically means overseer, mm-hmm. overseer. You can read in some of St. Paul's letters, for example, where he addresses it to the overseers, the episkopoi, okay. and the diakonoi of the local church, which is the, the he'll address it. He also talks about presbyters. What we call priests. Okay. So yeah, the these these are in would New be Testament deacons, diaconoi or deacons. Okay. Yeah. But the bishop, you know, in the beginning, when you read the New Testament, didn't have the precise meaning that it has today. The leaders of the local communities. Um, sometimes it was groups of leaders, a group of presbyters that are also called episcopoi overseers. Okay. But very shortly after the New Testament, so the late first century, beginning of the second century. You have what's called a monarchical bishop, one of those presbyters, one who is the leader of all the rest. And they're the ones in apostolic succession, like Paul himself or any of the 12. Mm -hmm. They were what we would call bishops. So they had the fullness of the sacrament of holy orders. They were the chief teachers. They were the chief celebrants of the liturgy. They were the chief shepherds. So you have this very quick development of the three grades of holy orders, bishop, priest, and deacon, in what we call the sub-apostolic period. So the period right after the apostles. And you have the rise of the monarchical bishop, that you have one bishop at the head of every local church. 
You see this already established when you read the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch, which are around the year 107 AD, where we see we, we already have in many of these churches of Asia Minor this model of church leadership. One bishop surrounded by his college of presbyters and, and the deacons. So it's really remarkable how this happened all over the world. Well, that world at that time where the church was was basically the Mediterranean world. And of course, we believe that's divine law, that this is immutable. It's unchangeable, this structure of the church. Okay. And so the original 11 and then 12 with Matthias were the original 12 bishops. Yeah. But also, I mean, you know, as I said, they didn't use that. You could say Paul was a bishop. Uh-huh because he had fullness of apostolic authority. He was an apostle. Okay. I'd say Barnabas, uh-huh. Timothy and Titus. I mean, we'd call them bishops. Okay. But they weren't like necessarily resident heads of local churches yet. They were still missionaries. Uh-huh. But as the church kind of grew and, and the local, and on the local level, as you had these traveling apostles, on the local level, you had presbyters okay. in charge of the communities. Right. But then within a couple decades, as the church grew, then you had one of these residential, I guess you could call, apostles or their successor who is has the full authority at, on the local level. And that's where we get the technical term, bishop, okay. at that point. Okay, more than just some kind of general overseer. What is a bishop? A bishop is one who has the full apostolic authority. Right. All right, well, a reminder, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop to submit your question or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have questions about Bishop's current reading list here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. We've got listeners submitted questions, and it's been a while since you've talked about this. What book are you currently reading? I'm reading two. I'm always reading more than one at a time, (laughs) Kyle. I started reading Robert Riley's book, America on Trial, A Defense of the Founding. It's published by Ignatius Press. And because I love political science, especially that period, the founding of the country. And so here he's defending our founding fathers. But I started getting into that book, and it was very interesting, a lot of things that I agree with. But he was criticizing another book by Patrick Deneen, who's a professor, really excellent professor of political science, strong Catholic at Notre Dame. Uh His book is Why Liberalism Failed. It's published by Yale University Press. So anyhow, I didn't finish Robert Riley's book because then I wanted to see what did Pat, <laughs> what did Patrick Deneen write. Uh-huh. So now I'm reading Patrick, and then I'll go back to Robert Riley. Okay, but basically, from what I can, I haven't finished yet. But evidently, Patrick Deneen is critical of some of the ideas of the founding fathers because they're based on philosophies that you know some of the you know rationalist uh, et cetera philosophies of the Enlightenment. So. So here we have two very good Catholics, but they're really, you know, debating. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I haven't talked to Patrick. I intend to ask him what he thinks of Robert Riley's uh, critique. Yeah. But I want to finish both before I talk to Professor Deneen. Okay. But I find it fascinating. It's very philosophical. If are there these flaws in our system, in our the philosophy, political philosophy from the very beginning of the founding of the United States? Uh-huh. That's the question. 
So maybe once you finish both books, you can give us a, a report. But maybe we could have Patrick come on the show. That'd be great. Yeah. I don't know Robert Riley or where he's at. Do you? I don't. Yeah. yeah. So I, I could check that out, but, but it'd be great to have Pat. Has Patrick Deneen ever been on Redeemer? I, yeah. I had him on the morning show. Yeah. Did he talk about this? It was book? before the book came out, I believe. Oh, okay. Now, by liberalism, you know, he's not talking about liberal conservative. Okay. By liberalism, he's referring to the classic definition of liberal democracy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sounds like a future episode. Yes. We'll, we'll put it on the back This will be another thing like we had on the existence of God yeah. Yeah. with Dr. Pearson, where we get into some heavy-duty scholarship. I'm for it. And I can't do it alone. I need these, ex- <laughs> I need these experts who are much smarter than I. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode. Could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.